Section 10 of The Great Encyclical Letters of Pope Leo XIII. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Condition of the Working Classes Encyclical Letter Rerum Novarum Part 1 May 15, 1891 That the spirit of revolutionary change, which has long been disturbing the nations of the world, should have passed beyond the sphere of politics, and made its influence felt in the cognate sphere of practical economics is not surprising the elements of the conflict now raging are unmistakable in the vast expansion of industrial pursuits and the marvellous discoveries of science in the changed relations between master and workmen in the enormous fortunes of some few individuals and the other poverty of the masses in the increased self-reliance and closer mutual combination of the working classes as also, finally, in the prevailing moral degeneracy. The momentous gravity of the state of things now obtaining fills every mind with painful apprehension. Wise men are discussing it, practical men are proposing schemes, popular meetings, legislators, and rulers of nations are all buried with it, and actually there is no question which has taken a deeper hold on the public mind. Therefore, venerable brethren, as on former occasions when it seemed opportune to refute false teaching we have addressed you in the interests of the church and of the commonweal and have issued letters bearing on political power human liberty the christian constitution of the state and like matter so have we thought it expedient now to speak on the condition of the working classes it is a subject on which we have already touched more than once incidentally but in the present letter the responsibility of the apostolic office urges us to treat the question of set purpose and in detail in order that no misapprehension may exist as to the principles which truth and justice dictate for its settlement the discussion is not easy nor is it void of danger it is no easy matter to define the relative rights and mutual duties of the rich and of the poor of capital and of labour and the danger lies in this that crafty agitators are intent on making use of these differences of opinion to pervert men's judgments and to stir up the people to revolt but all agree and there can be no question whatever that some remedy must be found and found quickly for the misery and wretchedness pressing so heavily and unjustly at this moment on the vast majority of the working classes for the ancient workingmen's guilds were abolished in the last century and no other organization took their place public institutions and the very laws have set aside the ancient religion hence by degrees it has come to pass that working men have been surrendered all isolated and helpless to the hard-heartedness of employers and the greed of unchecked competition the mischief has increased by rapacious usury which although more than once condemned by the church is nevertheless under a different guise but with the like injustice still practiced by covetous and grasping men to this must be added the custom of working by contract and the concentration of so many branches of trade in the hands of a few individuals so that a small amount of very rich men have been able to lay upon the teeming masses of the laboring poor a yoke little better than that of slavery itself to remedy these wrongs the socialists working on the poor man's envy of the rich are striving to do away with private property and contend that individual possessions should become the common property of all to be administered by the state or by municipal bodies 
they hold that by thus transferring property from private individuals to the community the present mischievous state of things will be set to rights inasmuch as each citizen will then get his fair share of whatever there is to enjoy but their contentions are so clearly powerless to end the controversy that were they carried into effect the working man himself would be among the first to suffer they are moreover emphatically unjust because they would rob the lawful possessor bring state action into a sphere not within its competence and create other confusion in the community it is surely undeniable that when a man engages in remunerative labor the impelling reason and motive of his work is to obtain property and thereafter to hold it as his very own if one man hires out to another his strength or skill he does so for the purpose of receiving in return what is necessary for sustenance and education he therefore expressly intends to acquire a right full and real not only to the remunerative but also to the disposal of such remuneration just as he pleases thus if he lives sparingly saves money and for greater security invests his savings in land the land in such case is only his wages under another form and consequently a working man's little estate thus purchased should be as completely at his full disposal as are the wages he receives for his labor but it is precisely in such power of disposal that ownership obtains whether the property consists of land or chattels socialists therefore by endeavoring to transfer the possessions of individuals to the community at large strike at the interests of every wage earner since they would deprive him of the liberty of disposing of his wages and thereby of all hope and possibility of increasing his stock and of bettering his condition in life what is a far greater moment however is the fact that the remedy they propose is manifestly against justice for every man has by nature the right to possess property as his own this is one of the chief points of distinction between man and the animal creation for the brute has no power of self-direction but is governed by two main instincts which keep his powers on the alert impel him to develop them in a fitting manner and stimulate and determine him to action without any power of choice one of these instincts is self-preservation the other the propagation of the species both can attain their purpose by means of things which lie within range beyond their verge the brute creation cannot go for they are moved to action by their senses only and in the special direction which these suggest but with man it is wholly different he possesses on the one hand the full perfection of the animal being and hence enjoys at least as much as the rest of the animal kind the fruition of things material but animal nature however perfect is far from representing the human being in its completeness and is in truth but humanity's humble handmaid made to serve and to obey it is the mind or reason which is the predominant element in us who are human creatures it is this which renders a human being human and distinguishes him essentially and generically from the brute and on this very account that man alone among the animal creation is endowed with reason it must be within his right to possess things not merely for temporary and momentary use as other living things do but to have and to hold them in stable and permanent possession he must have not only things that perish in the use of them but those also which though they have been reduced into use 
remain his own for further use. This becomes still more clearly evident if man's nature be considered a little more deeply. For man, fathoming by his faculty of reason matters without number, and linking the future with the present, becoming, furthermore, by taking enlightened forethought, master of his own acts, guides his ways under the eternal law and the power of God, whose providence governs all things. Wherefore, it is in his power to exercise his choice, not only as to matters that regard his present welfare, but also about those which he deems may be for his advantage in time yet to come. Hence, man not only can possess the fruits of the earth, but also the very soil, inasmuch as from the produce of the earth he has to lay by provisions for the future. Man's needs do not die out, but recur. Although satisfied today, they demand fresh supplies for tomorrow. Nature, accordingly, owes to man a storehouse that shall never fail, affording the daily supply for his daily wants. And this he finds solely in the inexhaustible fertility of the earth. Neither do we, at this stage, need to bring into action the interference of the state. Man precedes the state, and possesses, prior to the formation of any state, the right of providing for the sustenance of his body. Now to affirm that God has given the earth for the use and enjoyment of the whole human race is not to deny that private property is lawful, for God has granted the earth to mankind in general, not in the sense that all without distinction can deal with it as they like, but rather no part of it has been assigned to any one in particular, and that the limits of private possession have been left to be fixed by man's own industry and by the laws of individual races. Moreover, the earth, even though apportioned among private owners, ceases not thereby to administer to the needs of all, inasmuch as there is no one who does not sustain life from what the land produces. Those who do not possess the soil contribute their labor. Hence it may truly be said that all human subsistence is derived either from labor or one's own land, or from some toil, some calling which is paid for either in the produce of the land itself or in that which is exchanged for what the land brings forth. Here, again, we have further proof that private ownership is in accordance with the laws of nature. Truly, that which is required for the preservation of life, and for life's well-being, is produced in great abundance from the soil, but not until man has brought it into cultivation, and expended upon it his solicitude and skill. Now, when man thus turns the activity of his mind and the strength of his body towards procuring the fruits of nature, by such act he makes his own that portion of nature's field which he cultivates, that portion on which he leaves, as it were, the impress of his individuality. And it cannot but be just that he should possess that portion as his very own, and have a right to hold it without anyone being justified in violating that right. So strong and convincing are these arguments that it seems amazing that someone should now be setting up anew certain obsolete opinions in opposition to what is here laid down. They assert that it is the right for private persons to have the use of the soil and its various fruits, but that it is unjust for anyone to possess outright either the land on which he is built, or the estate which he has brought under cultivation. But those who deny these rights do not perceive that they are defrauding man of what his own labor has produced. For the soil, which is tilled and cultivated with toil and skill, utterly changes its conditions. It was wild before, now it is fruitful. 
was barren but now brings forth in abundance that which has thus altered and improved the land becomes so truly part of itself as to be in great measure indistinguishable and inseparable from it is it just that the fruits of a man's own sweat and labor should be possessed and enjoyed by any one else as effects follow their cause so it is just and right that the results of labor should belong to those who have bestowed their labor with reason then the common opinion of mankind little affected by the few dissentients who have contended for the opposite view has found in the careful study of nature and in the laws of nature the foundations of the division of property and the practice of all ages has consecrated the principle of private ownership as being preeminently in conformity with human nature and as conducing in the most unmistakable manner to the peace and tranquillity of human existence the same principle is confirmed and enforced by the civil laws laws which so long as they are just derive from the law of nature their binding force the authority of the divine law adds its sanction forbidding us in severest terms even to covet that which is another's thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's wife nor his house nor his field nor his manservant nor his maidservant nor his ox nor his ass nor anything which is his the rights here spoken of belonging to each individual man are seen in much stronger light when considered in relation to man's social and domestic obligations in choosing a state of life it is indisputable that all are at full liberty to follow the counsel of jesus christ as to observing virginity or to bind themselves by the marriage tie no human law can abolish the natural and original right of marriage nor in any way limit the chief and principal purpose of marriage ordained by god's authority from the beginning increase and multiply hence we have the family the society of a man's house a society limited indeed in numbers but no less a true society anterior to every kind of state or nation invested with rights and duties of its own totally independent of the civil community that right of property therefore which has been proved to belong naturally to individual persons must in likewise belong to a man in his capacity of head of a family nay such person must possess the right so much the more clearly in proportion as his position multiplies his duties for it is the most sacred law of nature that a father should provide food and all necessaries for those whom he has begotten and similarly nature dictates that a man's children who carry on so to speak and continue his own personality should be by him provided with all that is needful to enable them to keep themselves honourably from want and misery amid the uncertainties of this mortal life now in no other way can a father effect this except by the ownership of lucrative property which he can transmit to his children by inheritance a family no less than the state is as we have said a true society governed by a power within its sphere that is to say by the father provided therefore the limits which are prescribed by the very purposes for which it exists be not transgressed the family has at least equal rights with the state in the choice and pursuit of the things needful to its preservation and its just liberty we say at least equal rights for inasmuch as the domestic household is antecedent as well in idea as in fact to the gathering of men into a community the family must necessarily have rights and duties which are prior to those of the community and found it more immediately in nature if the citizens of a state in other words the families on entering into association and fellowship 
were to experience at the hands of the state hindrance instead of help and were to find their rights attacked instead of being upheld such association should be held in detestation rather than be an object of desire the contention then that the civil government should at its option intrude into and exercise intimate control over the family and the household is a great and pernicious error true if a family finds itself in exceeding distress utterly deprived of the counsel of friends and without any prospect of extricating itself it is right that extreme necessity be met by public aid since each family is a part of the commonwealth in like manner if when the precincts of the household there occur a grave disturbance of mutual rights public authority should intervene to force each party to yield to the other its proper due for this is not to deprive the citizens of their rights but justly and properly to safeguard and strengthen them but the rulers of the state must go no further here nature bids them stop paternal authority can be neither abolished nor absorbed by the state for it has the same source as human life itself the child belongs to the father and is as it were the continuation of the father's personality and speaking strictly the child takes its place in civil society not of its own right but in its quality as member of the family in which it is born and for the very reason that the child belongs to the father it is as st thomas of aquine says before it attains the use of free will under power and charge of its parents the socialists therefore in setting aside the parent and setting up a state supervision act against natural justice and break into pieces the stability of all family life and not only is such interference unjust but it is quite certain to harass and worry all classes of citizens and subject them to odious and intolerable bondage it would throw open the door to envy to mutual invective and to discord the sources of wealth themselves would run dry for no one would have any interest in exerting his talents or his industry and that ideal equality about which they entertain pleasant dreams would be in reality the leveling down of all to a like condition of misery and degradation hence it is clear that the main tenet of socialism community of goods must be utterly rejected since it only injures those whom it would seem meant to benefit is directly contrary to the natural rights of mankind and would introduce confusion and disorder into the commonweal the first and most fundamental principle therefore if one would undertake to alleviate the condition of the masses must be the inviolability of private property this being established we proceed to show where the remedy sought for must be found we approach the subject with confidence and in the exercise of the rights which manifestly appertain to us for no practical solution of this question will be found apart from the intervention of religion and of the church it is we who are the chief guardian of religion and the chief dispenser of what pertains to the church and we must not by silence neglect the duty incumbent on us doubtless this most serious question demands the attention and the efforts of others besides ourselves to wit of the rulers of states of employers of labor of the wealthy ay of the working classes themselves for whom we are pleading but we affirm without hesitation that all the striving of men will be in vain if they leave out the church it is the church that insists on the authority of the gospel upon those teachings whereby the conflict can be brought to an end or rendered at least far less bitter the church uses her efforts not only to enlighten the mind but to direct by her precepts the life and conduct of each and all 
the church improves and betters the condition of the working man by means of numerous useful organizations does her best to enlist the services of all ranks in discussing and endeavoring to meet in the most practical way the claims of the working classes and acts in the positive view that for these purposes recourse should be had in due measure and degree to the intervention of the law and of state authority let it then be taken as granted in the first place that the condition of things human must be endured for it is impossible to reduce civil society to one dead level socialists may in that intent do their utmost but all striving against nature is in vain there naturally exist among mankind manifold differences of the most important kind people differ in capacity skill health strength and unequal fortune is a necessary result of unequal condition such inequality is far from being disadvantageous either to individuals or to the community social and public life can only be maintained by means of various kinds of capacity for business and the playing of many parts and each man as a rule chooses the part which suits his own peculiar domestic condition as regards bodily labor even had man never fallen from the state of innocence he would not have remained wholly unoccupied but that which would have been his free choice and his delight became afterwards compulsory and the painful expiation for his disobedience cursed be the earth in thy work in thy labor thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life in like manner the other pains and hardships of life will have no end or cessation on earth for the consequences of sin are bitter and hard to bear and they must accompany man so long as life lasts to suffer and to endure therefore is the lot of humanity let them strive as they may no strength and no artifice will ever succeed in banishing from human life the ills and troubles which beset it if any there are who pretend differently who hold out to a hard-pressed people the boon of freedom from pain and trouble and undisturbed repose and constant enjoyment they delude the people and impose upon them and their lying promises will only one day bring forth evils worse than the present nothing is more useful than to look upon the world as it really is and at the same time to seek elsewhere as we have said for the solace to its troubles the great mistake made in regard to the matter now under consideration is to take up with the notion that class is naturally hostile to class and that the wealthy and the workingmen are intended by nature to live in mutual conflict so irrational and so false is this view that the direct contrary is the truth just as the symmetry of the human frame is the resultant of the disposition of the bodily members so in a state is it ordained by nature that these two classes should dwell in harmony and agreement and should as it were groove into one another so as to maintain the balance of the body politic each needs the other capital cannot do without labor nor labor without capital mutual agreement results in pleasantness of life and the beauty of good order while perpetual conflict necessarily produces confusion and savage barbarity now in preventing such strife as this and in uprooting it the efficacy of christian institutions is marvellous and manifold first of all there is no intermediary more powerful than religion whereof the church is the interpreter and guardian in drawing the rich and the poor breadwinners together by reminding each class of its duties to the other and especially of the obligations of justice thus religion teaches the laboring man and the artisan to carry out honestly and fairly all equitable agreements freely entered into 
never to injure the property nor to outrage the person of an employer never to resort to violence in defending their own cause nor to engage in riot or disorder and to have nothing to do with men of evil principles who work upon the people with artful promises and excite foolish hopes which usually end in useless regrets followed by insolvency religion teaches the wealthy owner and the employer that their workpeople are not to be accounted their bondsmen that in every man they must respect his dignity and worth as a man and as a christian that labor is not a thing to be ashamed of if we lend ear to right reason and to christian philosophy but is an honorable calling enabling a man to sustain his life in a way upright and credible and that it is shameful and inhuman to treat men like shadows to make money by or to look upon them merely as so much muscle or physical power again therefore the church teaches that as religion and things spiritual and mental are among the working man's main concerns the employer is bound to see that the worker has time for his religious duties that he be not exposed to corrupting influence and dangerous occasions and that he be not led away to neglect his home and family or to squander his earnings furthermore the employer must never tax his workpeople beyond their strength or employ them in work unsuited to their sex or age his great and principal duty is to give every one a fair wage doubtless before deciding whether wages are adequate many things have to be considered but wealthy owners and all masters of labor should be mindful of this that to exercise pressure upon the indigent and the destitute for the sake of gain and to gather one's profit out of the need of another is condemned by all laws human and divine to defraud any one of wages that are his due is a crime which cries to the avenging anger of heaven behold the hire of the laborers which by fraud hath been kept back by you crieth aloud and the cry of them hath entered into the ears of the lord of sabbath lastly the rich must religiously refrain from cutting down the workingmen's earnings whether by force by fraud or by usurious dealing and with all the greater reason because the laboring man is as a rule weak and unprotected and because his slender means should in proportion to their scantiness be accounted sacred were these precepts carefully obeyed and followed out would they not be sufficient of themselves to keep under all strife and all its causes but the church with jesus christ as her master and guide aims higher still she lays down the precepts yet more perfect and tries to bind class to class in friendliness and good feeling the things of earth cannot be understood or valued aright without taking into consideration the life to come the life that will know no death exclude the idea of futurity and forthwith the very notion of what is good and right would perish nay the whole scheme of the universe would become a dark and unfathomable mystery the great truth which we learn from nature herself is also the grand christian dogma on which religion rests as on its foundation that when we have given up this present life then shall we really begin to live god has not created us for the perishable and transitory things of earth but for things heavenly and everlasting he has given us this world as a place of exile and not as our abiding place as for riches and the other things which men call good and desirable whether we have them in abundance or lack them altogether so far as eternal happiness is concerned it matters little the only important thing is to use them aright jesus christ when he redeemed us with plentiful redemption took not away the pains and sorrows 
which in such large proportion are woven together in the web of our mortal life he transformed them into motives of virtue and occasions of merit and no man can hope for eternal reward unless he follows in the blood-stained footprints of his saviour if we suffer with him we shall also reign with him christ's labours and sufferings accepted of his own free will have marvellously sweetened all suffering and all labour and not only by his example but by his grace and by the hope held forth of everlasting recompense has he made pain and grief more easy to endure for that which is at present momentary in light of our tribulation worketh for us above measure exceedingly in the eternal weight of glory therefore those whom fortune favours are warned that freedom from sorrow and abundance of earthly riches are no warrant for the bliss that shall never end but rather are obstacles that the rich should tremble at the threatenings of jesus christ threatenings so unwanted in the mouth of our lord and that a most strict account must be given to the supreme judge for all we possess the chief and most excellent rule for the right use of money is one which the heathen philosophers hinted at but which the church has traced out clearly and has not only made known to men's minds but has impressed upon their lives it rests on the principle that it is one thing to have a right to the possession of money and another to have a right to use money as one wills private ownership as we have seen is the natural right of man and to exercise that right especially as members of society it is not only lawful but absolutely necessary it is lawful says st thomas of aquinas for a man to hold private property and it is also necessary for the carrying on of human existence but if the question be asked how must one's possessions be used the church replies without hesitation in the words of the same holy doctor man should not consider his outward possessions as his own but as common to all so as to share them without hesitation when others are in need whence the apostle saith command the rich of this world to offer with no stint to apportion largely true no one is commanded to distribute to others that which is required for his own needs and those of his household nor even to give away what is reasonably required to keep up becomingly his condition in life for no one ought to live other than becomingly but when what necessity demands has been supplied and one standing fairly taken thought for it becomes a duty to give to the indigent out of what remains over of that which remaineth give alms it is a duty not of justice save in extreme cases but of christian charity a duty not enforced by human law but the laws and judgments of men must yield place to the laws and judgments of christ the true god who in many ways urges on his followers the practice of almsgiving it is more blessed to give than to receive and who will count a kindness done or refused to the poor as done or refused to himself as long as you did it to one of my least brethren you did it to me to sum up then what has been said whoever has received from the divine bounty a large share of temporal blessings whether they be external and corporal or gifts of the mind has received them for the purpose of using them for the perfecting of his own nature and at the same time that he may employ them as a steward of god's providence for the benefit of others he that hath a talent says st gregory the great let him see that he hide it not he that hath abundance let him quicken himself to mercy and generosity he that hath art and skill 
let him do his best to share the use and the utility thereof with his neighbor as for those who possess not the gift of fortune they are taught by the church that in god's sight poverty is no disgrace and that there is nothing to be ashamed of in seeking one's bread by labor this is enforced by what we see in christ himself for whereas he was rich for our sakes became poor and who became the son of god and god himself chose to seem and to be considered the son of a carpenter nay did not disdain to spend a great part of his life as a carpenter himself is not this the carpenter the son of mary from contemplation of this divine exemplar it is more easy to understand that the true worth and nobility of man lies in his moral qualities that is in virtue that virtue is moreover the common inheritance of men equally within the reach of high and low rich and poor and that virtue and virtue alone wherever found will be followed by the rewards of everlasting happiness nay god himself seems to incline rather to those who suffer misfortune for jesus christ calls the poor blessed he lovingly invites those in labor and grief to come to him for solace and he displays the tenderest charity towards the lowly and the oppressed these reflections cannot fail to keep down the pride of those who are well to do and to embolden the spirit of the afflicted to incline the former to generosity and the latter to meek resignation thus the separation which pride would set up tends to disappear nor will it be difficult to make rich and poor join hands in friendly concord but if christian precepts prevail the respective classes will not only be united in the bonds of friendship but also in those of brotherly love for they will understand and feel that all men are children of the same common father who is god that all have alike the same last end which is god himself who alone can make either men or angels absolutely and perfectly happy that each and all are redeemed and made sons of god by jesus christ the firstborn among many brethren that the blessings of nature and the gifts of grace belong to the whole human race in common and that from none except the unworthy is withheld the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven if sons heirs also heirs indeed of god and co-heirs of christ such is the scheme of duties and of rights which is shown forth to the world by the gospel would it not seem that were society penetrated with ideas like these strife must quickly cease but the church not content with pointing out the remedy also applies it for the church does her utmost to teach and to train men and to educate them and by the intermediary of her bishops and clergy diffuses her solitary teachings far and wide she strives to influence the mind and the heart so that all may willingly yield themselves to be formed and guided by the commandments of god it is precisely in this fundamental and momentous matter on which everything depends that the church possesses a power peculiarly her own the agencies which she employs are given to her by jesus christ himself for the very purpose of reaching the hearts of men and derive their efficiency from god they alone can reach the innermost heart and conscience and bring men to act from a motive of duty to resist their passions and appetites to love god and their fellow-men with a love that is singular and supreme and to break down courageously every barrier which impedes the way of a life of virtue on this subject we need but recall for one moment the examples recorded in history of these facts there cannot be any shadow of doubt 
for instance that civil society was renovated in every part by the teachings of christianity that in the strength of that renewal the human race was lifted up to better things nay that it was brought back from death to life and to so excellent a life that nothing more perfect had been known before or will come to be known in the ages that have yet to be of this beneficent transformation jesus christ was at once the first cause and the final end as from him all came so to him was all to be brought back for when the human race by the light of the gospel message came to know the grand mystery of the incarnation of the word and the redemption of man at once the life of jesus christ god and man pervaded every race and nation and interpenetrated them with his faith his precepts and his laws and if society is to be healed now in no other way can it be healed save by a return to christian life in christian institutions when a society is perishing the wholesome advice to give to those who would restore it is to recall it to the principles from which it sprang for the purpose and perfection of an association is to aim at and to attain that for which it was formed and its efforts should be put in motion and inspired by the end and object which originally gave it being hence to fall away from its primal constitution implies disease to go back to it recovery and this may be asserted with utmost truth both of the state in general and of that body of its citizens by far the great majority who sustain life by their labor neither must it be supposed that the solicitude of the church is so preoccupied with the spiritual concerns of her children as to neglect their temporal and earthly interests her desire is that the poor for example should rise above poverty and wretchedness and better their condition in life and for this she makes a strong endeavor by the very fact that she calls men to virtue and forms them to its practice she promotes this in no slight degree christian morality when adequately and completely practised leads of itself to temporal prosperity for it merits the blessing of that god who is the source of all blessings it powerfully restrains the greed of possession and the thirst for pleasure twin plagues which too often make a man who is void of self-restraint miserable in the midst of abundance it makes men supply for the lack of means through economy teaching them to be content with frugal living and further keeping them out of the reach of those vices which devour not small incomes merely but large fortunes and dissipate many a goodly inheritance end of rerum novarum part one end of section ten